Good morning. We're going to get started. Today is the first day of spring. Yay, right? We are happy for that. We are happy for that. All right, let me open in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, and we want to praise you today for your faithfulness to us. Even in the passing of the seasons, from fall to winter and now to spring, Lord, we see your faithfulness, that things keep going on as you have established them. And we know that because of that, we can trust you, even with our lives from the day to day. And Lord, now we come and we want to understand more about your word, about your work in our hearts. And I pray that you will calm our hearts and open our ears. I pray that you will speak through my mouth and may I be faithful to your word. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, about you and about your law. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, last week we studied about the blessings and the curses, right? Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God had brought his people out of Egypt to give them a land, right? He to bless them, to make them a nation. But their sin and rebellion is actually going to result in in a kind of reversal of that exodus. They're going to go back into slavery and oppression by other nations. They're going to be reduced to seeking after gods who cannot see, who cannot hear, and who cannot act. They're going to be scattered among the nations. Um, We saw last week their desperation their desperation, they were reduced to doing things they never thought they would do, that we would say we would never do that. But yet we know that the depravity that was in them is in every human being, which includes us as well. And these things were written down for our instruction, which is why we need to study them. In our study of Deuteronomy, we're talking about a lot about the law of God. And in the opening page of this week's homework, there's a psalm printed there as there is every week. And one of the verses in your psalm for this week from Psalm 119, verse 159, says this. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Consider how I love your precepts. Precepts, another word for commandment, for law, for testimonies, for statutes, for rules. It's used all through that psalm. And all through that Psalm 119 especially, we see how much the psalmist loves the law, delights in the law, meditates in the law. He clings to the law, right? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That's in verse 97. I want to read um, part of an article um, that was written by Burke Parsons. This was in the Table Talk magazine from 2011. It was a whole magazine talking about the law. Oh, how I love thy law. So this is, the article was entitled, Our Liberating God. Why would anyone love the law of God? Why would we love that which constantly tells us what miserable wretches we are, daily points out all our shortcomings, relentlessly reminds us of all our death-deserving sins, and keeps knocking us down to our knees, leaving us crying out for help. 
Well, the truth of the matter is that not just anyone loves the law of God, but only those who have been set free by our law-giving, law-keeping, and law-liberating Savior. We love the law of God not because we possess some sort of inherent self-inflicting, self-depreciating, sadistic disposition towards our sin, but because in his electing grace, God set his glorious and enduring love on us. He laid his eternal claim upon us, took hold of us, and clutched us in his strong hands and made us his dutiful bond slaves that we might be free to delight in his law and in all the commands of Christ who by no means abolished the law, but in fact fulfilled it perfectly in our behalf. His death is our life. His fulfillment is our freedom. His duty is our delight. This is why we desire to know the law of God, to understand it, and soon hopefully to delight in it as the psalmist did. I just think that's beautiful. Okay, let's jump right into our passage. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 1. It says, these are the words. Now, did you recognize that these are the same words that opened the book of Deuteronomy? Back in chapter 1, verse 1, it opens with this. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. So the opening of chapter 1 then tells us that Moses is beginning his final sermon to the people. This is his final summary. So Deuteronomy, we look at that as a summary of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And this last sermon is really a summary of the summary. So verse uh, 1 of chapter 29 reads like this. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord God that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. Now, you you recall the scene at Horeb, right? We studied it in chapter 5. That's where the people first came. When they came out of Egypt, God took them to Horeb. He brought them to the mountain. He came down the mountain. He spoke to them as law. Moses actually went up and spent 40 days and 40 nights where God gave him the rest of the law. Um, In Exodus 24, we read that Moses then returned to the people and he read them all the words that the Lord had given him. And the people answered with one voice that they would do all that the Lord had commanded in the book of the covenant. And that covenant was sealed with the blood of an animal sacrifice. But we know what happened to that first generation. Right? They didn't do all that the Lord had commanded them. They disobeyed and they rebelled at Kadesh Barnea and God sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years until that first generation would die. Now, here is the second generation stand, standing in Moab and it is to these that Moses is now speaking and it is to these that God is about to renew his covenant. And I just want to point out the mercy of God in that, that he would renew his covenant with the people who have done nothing but grumble and complain and rebel against him, right? Such mercy. And I will venture to say that we're going to see both mercy and grace, in fact, a gospel thread running through our text today. Charles Spurgeon, an an English Baptist preacher from the 1800s, said this, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle 
And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. Anyone who knows anything about sewing knows that you can't not just stick thread into fabric. You have to put that thread through that little tiny hole in that needle. The needle actually punctures the fabric and then you can pull the thread through it. The law is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart or a woman's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. We've wrestled a great deal through our study of Deuteronomy, right? Trying to figure out what place the law has for us today in our cultural context. Hopefully we can see the connection between the needle of the law and the thread of the gospel today. That is my hope. We're going to look at four points um, today, this morning. We're going we're gonna to remember, we're going to look at resisting, repent, repent, repenting, and responsibility. So first we're going to talk about remember. This is not a foreign concept to us, right, through the study of Deuteronomy. Let's pick up in um, chapter 29, verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Wouldn't that be amazing? You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Let's stop there. God, through Moses, is helping them to recall all that he has done for them up to this point. We've heard all about this through the book of Deuteronomy, about the importance of remembering. And we have, we have read and studied what he had done for them. And as God renews the covenant with, these, with his people, he wants them to remember that it was he who led them out of Egypt. There were the plagues and the defeat of the Egyptian army and the parting of the Red Sea and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. Now, we know, too, that the first generation passed away, but, but before that happened, God had said those that were under 20 years of age that they would, would live, right? So 20 plus 40 is 60. So there were some that had actually seen with their eyes, and they could tell the stories. And that would be a story you would certainly tell, wouldn't it? God wanted them to remember that he led them in the wilderness, that the clothes and the shoes didn't wear out. And in verse 6 it says, You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink. This is actually more a statement about what they did eat and drink. And what did they have there? They had water from rock. Water doesn't come from rocks. Right? That was a miracle. Manna came from heaven. Every single morning they got up, and there it was. It was a supernatural provision. And why? Verse 6 tells us that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And he also wants them to remember, too, that he had led them in battle. He gave them the victory over those two kings. And God was really generous in giving that land to them, too, because that was outside the land that had been promised. 
It was, this, it was the land on, on this side, the uh, west side of the Jordan River, that had been the land of promise. But God, in generosity, gave them this land also on the east side of the Jordan. And that is where they stand in, in our passage today. But there's a problem. In verse 4 it says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Even though they had seen these things, with their eyes they saw those great signs and wonders, the miracles, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Why? Because the Lord God himself hadn't yet given it to them to understand. Israel's greatest need right now is understanding the words and the works of God for what they really are. God's words and works have been their redemption and their protection and their provision for 40 years. God is proving to his people that he is their God. But the people are still blinded up to this point. They still don't have a heart to follow after God fully. And we're going to talk about that more in a, in a little bit. So God calls them to remember, to remember from whence they came. We also need to remember from whence we came. We all were once slaves to sin and in bondage. But when God saves us, we are freed from that slavery and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. And because of what God has done, both for them, right, and for us today, let's see what he says in verse 9. It says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Again, we have familiar words, keep the words of this covenant. And because this call is to keep the words, that to keep the words comes after the word therefore, right? We know that it's a response. It's a response to the work that he had done for them, just like it's a response uh, for, to the work that he's done in our lives as well. It will bring blessing. He says that you may prosper in all that you do. We studied that last week all about the blessings. Let's move on in, in verse 10. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and all your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. Did you note that no one is left out from the least of the people to the greatest? No one is left out. Verse 12, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. So for the first, so the first time the covenant was established, it was with that first generation. And now that the first generation has passed away, God is renewing this covenant with the second generation, but not just with them who were present and accounted for, but for generations to come. And in the future, even the Gentiles. Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their woods of idol and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, 
lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So first, God, through Moses, asked the people to remember. Now he asks them to resist, to resist sin. He is warning them of the dangers of idolatry and hypocrisy. So he reminds them about the detestable things that their eyes had seen, the idols of wood and stone, of gold and silver. Um, Idolatry is an abomination to the Lord God. The Israelites had been brought out of a land of idolatry and pagan worship by the one true God. It would be detestable for them to return to such things. So he warns them, beware. That is a strong word. It's not just a little caution. Oh, watch out for that. It's a strong word. Beware, lest there be a man or woman whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. They actually do turn away from the one true God and towards idols of wood and stone and gold and silver. Idolatry. And back in ancient Israel, idolatry would be easily identified, right? They had the idols. But what's the next warning? Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Wow, that's pretty bold. But let's look closely at this. This is described as a root. Whereas idolatry, it was a little more identifiable visibly, right? But this is a root. Roots are buried beneath the earth. They're not visible, readily visible to the, to the eye, but until the fruit comes. And in this instance, he calls it a poisonous and bitter fruit. Until you see that bad fruit, you might not know what the state of the root is. What does this teach us? God is warning them and us that it's because it is God who sees and knows the heart. We can only view the outside. We cannot know what's in a person's heart. A person might appear righteous and good. It might seem like everything is in order. Do you remember when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in the New Testament in Matthew 23? He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. On the outside they appeared righteous, but on the inside, hidden away from the eyes of people, but in clear view of God, they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, just like a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And did you notice what the person in our passage does? He blesses himself. He blesses himself rather than the God who had rescued him from idolatry and from the house of slavery. And what does he say? He says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Well, this is just arrogance. 
This is presuming upon the grace and mercy of God. Notice that he makes this statement after hearing the words of the sworn covenant, after he has heard the call to obedience and to keep the words of the law and to walk in God's ways and to love God with all his heart and soul and might. Talk about utter rebellion. And before we sit in judgment of this person, let's think about our own selves. How often do we sit in church and we wholeheartedly agree with the message that we heard preached only to leave church and return to living exactly as we did the week before? We may have even felt a little conviction, but we quickly forget. And we think we're safe. We think we're safe even though we continue to walk in the stubbornness of our hearts. God says, God's word says to beware. Resist this sin, the sin of hypocrisy as well as idolatry because there is a consequence for this sin. Let's see what it is. At the end of verse 19, this will lead away, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry lake. What that means is that the sin this sin of the one is going to affect the whole community. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 5, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? We've talked before about how sin spreads. Let's read on. In verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Well, that is judgment. Verse 21, And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity, in accordance with all the curses of the book of the covenant written in this book of the law. So we have to note that the individual, too, will be called into account, though he thought he was safe because he was part of the community. And we have to remember that, too, just because you're part of a church doesn't mean you're going to be called into account with the whole church, right? We will be called into account individually. We will have to stand before God. Verse 22, and the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt Nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. We can see the judgment of God on the whole land, the whole community, the moist and dry alike being swept away. It was really like the curses that we had studied back in chapter 28. Verse 24. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Wow. Do you hear the prophetic word coming to them here? 
These people are standing on the edge of the Jordan River, poised to go into the Promised Land. But they're hearing not only warnings, but also what will happen in judgment when the sin of idolatry and hypocrisy turns their hearts away from following after God. So in verses 19 to 25, we see the word will, W-I-L-L, nine times. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him. God's anger and jealousy will smoke against that man. The curses written in the book will settle upon him. The Lord will blot out his name. The Lord will single him out. Your children and those in other lands will say. The nations will say. The people will say. This is all spoken in a future tense. It's a prophetic word. And we know, because we have the whole of Scripture, we know that Israel will indeed be taken into another land. You know, back in 975 BCE, Israel, the whole nation of Israel, was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. In 734 to 724 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into a captive captivity by Assyria. You want to know why? Their first king, their first king, Jeroboam, had set up two golden calves as idols to be worshipped. Two golden calves, not just one golden calf, like the first generation had made. Two golden calves. What an abomination! And these ten tribes are now called the ten lost tribes of Israel. They never returned to their land. And in 597 BCE, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon for the same reason, idolatry. And God in his mercy gave them 70 years of captivity. We read about that in the book of Daniel. And King Cyrus of Persia decreed through the sovereignty of God that they could return to their land. And they did. They did. Idolatry. Beware, resist, or judgment will indeed come. Israel had abandoned the covenant of the Lord. They had turned away and did exactly the opposite of what God had commanded them to do. Remember his first commandment? Have no other gods before me. Do you know that Israel was not under judgment because they couldn't keep the law perfectly? God gave them his law. He knew their hearts. He knew that they wouldn't be able to keep the law perfectly. He also gave them a provision for that, the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was put in place to cover their sin. Such mercy and grace we see. Every day, twice a day, sacrifices were being made for the sins of the people. All they had to do was come. But they weren't all coming. They turned away. They abandoned the worship of Yahweh and turned to the worship of other gods. Yes, the law was hard to keep in places, but they weren't ousted from the land because they couldn't keep the law. All they needed to do was repent. They had abandoned the Lord God, and that is called apostasy. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and this led away to the sweeping of moist and dry alike. And we need to take heed of that warning as well. Let's pick up in verse 29. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now this verse is often quoted when people are going through really hard times, and it doesn't make sense why God would allow such hard things to happen. I mean, don't we sometimes want to know what God is doing? Right? We want to know. But secret things belong to God. However, we need to keep this verse in the context of what's happening in this passage, and we see that, yes, a hard thing is going to happen in the future. God is going to send his people, his treasured possession, into captivity and judge them for their sin. But the things that are revealed belong to us, he says. He's talking here about the law, the words of God to his people. These things are revealed so that they could do all the words of the law. God told them what to do. He had told them how to live in relationship to him and how to live in relationship with each other, their neighbors. In other words, you have no excuse. They had no excuse. When judgment comes upon them, they will not be able to say that they didn't know why it happened. And we also have God's word, not just the law. We have the whole counsel of scripture. We also have the commands of Christ. And we also need to resist sin. And when we do sin, we need to repent. And this brings us to our next chapter. Let's open uh, with chapter 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Isn't this just beautiful? Moses prophesied that the people will indeed fall away. And they'll be carried off, they'll be exiled, and then they'll be regretful. I wonder if they'll be remembering. And they will repent and cry out to the Lord, and he will hear their cries and bring them back. It doesn't matter how far they've been scattered. He will gather them up and bring them back. And, and, you know, I think this is where the needle of the law comes in that Charles Spurgeon had talked about. They surely would call to mind all that the Lord God had commanded them. I have to imagine that their hearts would be pierced with that needle and that they were aware that they had sinned. They realized their need to repent and turn back. And God, in his mercy, restores them. This message is for us as well. In Galatians chapter 3, we read that the law was added because of transgressions. Right In Romans 7, we read that the law reveals to us our sin. It's how we know what sin is. But we can't keep the law perfectly either, can we? We cannot. But we also have been given a provision. It's the cross. The cross. Christ Jesus gave his life. He was the perfect and final sacrifice. So that when we cannot keep the law, we just come. 
We just come. We come to the cross and we confess our sin. But we don't just confess our sin. We turn from our sin. That's the meaning of the word repent. It's a turning, a change of mind, a reorientation, a fundamental transformation of our outlook. Repent, turning away. But even this is impossible for us to do ourselves. Let's read on. In chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. God will circumcise your heart. We've talked about this before, but I want to go into it a little bit again. What is circumcision? Why that? For years, I tried to make the connection between what I know physical circumcision is and why God that would make that a sign of his covenant. Well, what is circumcision? Circumcision is a cutting away. It's a separation of the flesh. Circumcision is a physical picture of our sanctification. It's God separating us from our sinful flesh, spiritually speaking, because we still live in these fleshly bodies, right? We still deal, deal with our sinful natures. But before God does this work of circumcising our hearts, we still live as slaves to sin. But after this work of circumcising our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Word of God, we are no longer slaves to sin. God does a work of separating us from sin, from the world, from things that corrupt. Do you remember how we talked about how we are positionally holy and yet becoming progressively holy? When God circumcises our hearts, that's a, that's a work of him making us positionally holy. And he does it through the work of his son, Jesus, who lived both a life of perfect obedience to the law and who also took on the penalty for our disobedience to that same law. Christ's righteousness is credited to our account if we believe on him as Lord. But we have a little more to cover yet. Let's pick up in verse 7. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. That rings from uh, chapter 28, right? For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. When you obey the voice of God, keep his commandments, his statutes, when you turn to the Lord, all that happens after God circumcises their hearts. And notice that God didn't remove the command to keep the commandments and the statutes written in the law. Right? He circumcises their hearts and he says, and you're still going to obey. Remember back in chapter 29, verse 4, where they didn't have a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear? Well, now God gives them a new heart. This is God's work. Let's listen to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. 
I will take you, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Here we see the gospel in all its glory. This is God's promise to give us a new heart and a new spirit. He doesn't just cleanse our hearts, cleanse that old heart, right? He removes the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh, a living heart. Remember how the law was written on tablets of stone? Let's see what happens. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is finished, right? He sat down. He's done. Waiting. He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there again is that already and not yet. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And it goes on. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord. He says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, scripture tells us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise. But it doesn't just end there. We have a choice to make. They have a choice to make, right? We have a responsibility. That's our fourth word, responsibility. Let's pick up in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. It kind of sounds like Moses is saying again, there's no excuse, right? There's no excuse. It's not too hard for you. It's not some lofty, idealistic thing that's just too impossible to understand. It's not some philosophy that one has to go on a quest to find the key to life and living. No, Life was to be found by the Hebrews in the law of the covenant, which Moses set before them. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. With these words on the very essence of the law, Moses concludes with a decision. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live 
and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Okay, so a choice is set before them. Even though God has circumcised their hearts and opened their eyes, there's still a choice. There's still a responsibility, right? A choice between life and death, between good and evil, between blessing and and curse. God and his ability to save is not for one moment in question, but there remains a responsibility for the people. But this decision isn't just a simple affirmation of the commands of God. It's not just a verbal agreement. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe all that. It's not, it, it, it's not just we can do what we want. This involves a whole way of life based on the decision to follow the Lord. You cannot half-heartedly serve the Lord or just love him a little bit. There's no sitting on the fence with this one. This ready and loving obedience would be the catalyst, right? It would be the catalyst for releasing the full potentiality of God's ancient promise to their fathers on them. Well, what does that say? It says that they may live that they may dwell in the land. But refusal to choose life would lead to death. If they follow after other gods, who aren't gods at all, they would perish. This wrong decision would preclude the possibility of experiencing the fulfillment of that ancient promise. And Moses urges them to make that proper choice, right? His words are virtually a command. Choose life. Choose life. And it's an important thing because he calls two witnesses, heaven and earth. The commentator says this, the heavens and the earth, permanent and unchanging features of God's creation, would bear silent witness in the future to the faithfulness of the people living out the implications of their choice. Only in making and abiding by the right decision would the Israelite find God's true purpose, for he is your life and length of days. That's what, what it says in the passage. But you know, we too must respond to this. We too have a responsibility. But what kind of response are we supposed to have? What bearing does the law of God have on us today? The Holy Spirit still uses the law to teach us about our Creator to teach us about God, to give us a glimpse of his righteousness, holiness, and justice, to restrain our sin, and to, to restrain the sin of all people, to give us a glimpse of the heinousness of our sin, to reveal the narrow road, 
right? Jesus talked about the narrow road. The law helps us to see the narrow road as a life, excuse me, as a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He uses the law to drive us to our knees in liberating repentance, to daily cry for help, to lift our eyes to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Burke uh, Parsons uh, ended his article with this statement. Our abundant life of freedom in Christ is not simply a freedom to do anything we want to do, but to have the uninterrupted, spirit-sustaining power to do what we know we ought to do as God the Holy Spirit changes our wants and daily transforms our God-given duties into God-glorifying delights. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just for unbelievers. It's for us as well, believers. And we need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves, right? We need to daily remember from where we came, from whence we came, from what God has saved us. The life we used to live in bondage to sin. We need to daily resist the sin that we constantly struggle with to resist temptation. We need to daily repent because we will sin. We will. As long as we live in these earthly bodies, we will sin and we will need to repent. And we need to daily respond to the call to live for Christ and in obedience to his commands. This is our responsibility. We need to trust in the one who gave himself for us. We need to walk in the spirit and not by our flesh. And that's going to involve self-denial. That's the responsibility that we have, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let the needle of the law pierce your heart so that the gospel thread can be pulled through. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with the needle of the law and allow the gospel thread to be pulled through and not just through a single little thread line, but Lord, to to permeate our hearts and to permeate our minds and our wills so that we would not just think we have to obey you, but that we would want to obey you because of what you did for us, because you have set us free. Help us to live in freedom, not doing just what we want, but to living in obedience to your word. Transform us, Lord, into the image of your Son. We ask all this in your name. Amen.